Did you see the insanity that I think it's the Mulan movie on Disney Plus that like it costs money? Okay. And you have to have a subscription? All right, so I don't think you should have to do both, obviously, but what they should do is just release it and say you have to pay this much to watch it because I they're not able to put it in theaters and you have to mm-hmm. assume that more than one person is going to watch it if somebody's paying money to stream it at the house, right? Right. So I I understand the price mark of like 25 or 30 bucks to watch the movie, but requiring them to also have a subscription to Disney Plus, that's fucked up. Yeah. Like it should be automatically it can like included or like $20 if you don't have subscription, and if you do, it's, you know, it's 5 or 10 or something extra, or 0 If you want to just tack on a little bit more if they have a subscription, and then ask for the full price if you don't have a subscription, that makes sense. Or even be like, if you've had subscription for the past 6 months, you know, or something like that. Like, Or if you buy a 6-month yeah. subscription, get to watch this it movie as part it. of it. Yeah. yeah. They, yeah, they really need to rethink what the fuck they're doing there, because other movies since lockdown have been released in a similar fashion where they're doing like 20 to 40 dollars for you to stream it but you know you have your entire family sit down and watch it it's still cheaper than going to the fucking theater and watching a movie with your family so you know i I do i still feel bad for people like me who live alone and have no significant other and no friends so you're just watching it by yourself you're never gonna pay 30 or 40 bucks to stream a fucking movie by yourself. That's just... Yeah. Yeah, I, they need to rethink all that shit. They need to fix their bullshit. This is totally going in the episode. <laughs> because fuck Disney+. Plus. Let's talk about Lisa, Samantha Jones, <laughs> and the rest of this movie, I guess. <laughs> hey, everybody. Welcome back to Real Specific. I'm Jake, and I'm here with my friend. Hey, I'm Klaus. This month we're talking about invading the homes of the disabled, and this week on part four, the final episode of it, we are doing Wait Until Dark 1967, directed by Terrence Young, and starring the lovely Audrey Hepburn. What do you think, Klaus? What's your opening notes here? This movie was a delight. You go up to the county, you purchase one ticket, please, to this wild and wacky, like, carnival roller coaster. And it's not realistic. Uh, You know, a subway ride would get you there more directly and faster, but it's not as fun. (laughs) It's a journey, for sure. Yeah, it's a ride. You're definitely buying a ticket for the ride. There's probably a number of problems, more than I will even notice, most likely. I'm sure... Thousands upon thousands of different critics have been through this plot a hundred times. So, you know, if you want to just find holes, there's other people out there to do it. Today, we're just going to talk about the movie making aspects of it because that's the stuff I enjoy. And this one's got a lot of good stuff in it. And this movie particular, if if you're talking about looking at holes, it's like a cardigan. (laughs) It's not very hard to find holes, but it's, it's not there to be plate mail yeah it's it's made that way because that's what it is on purpose (laughs) right a couple of the themes for this month is whether the differently able person is the protagonist or the antagonist 
And then if their abilities or senses, if they're elevated supernaturally, or if they're more reasonable or, or grounded. And then the last one is if or how have they adapted to their situation or surroundings. And so it's something we're kind of looking at. Which is going to be a little more interesting in this one because our protagonist is relatively new to being blind. Yeah, I think like a year or so, like relatively new. Mm -hmm. And as a just a short plot summary that gets so much more convoluted as we go, a doll is stuffed with heroin, brought from Canada into the U.S. The people bringing it over have to hide it really quickly, so it ends up in innocent people's house that have nothing to do with anything. And three con men band together to try and get the doll back. That's basically our setup. Yeah, I mean, essentially. That's pretty much everything you need to know. Like I said, it gets way too complicated. I guarantee you when we get to the actual, like, thick plot part of this movie, we are going to not remember half of it because it's so convoluted and barely made any sense. Yeah, it was it was fun to follow. It was fun to follow. It kind of felt like a clue movie or like a murder mystery. I watched Knives Out recently. It kind of felt like something like that where it was like the point was to be complicated and kind of wacky. But like Knives Out I like a lot, by the way. And I love the movie Clue as well. That's another really fun one. But those are more like you're trying to figure it out with the characters or like just use the information you have, you know, to figure everything out. This you know everything because you're seeing both sides of all of it and you're having to keep up with which characters don't know what, who is saying what to get what reaction out of who, you know? <laughs> it, it's just this whole convoluted mess and you're trying to keep it all straight in your head, but it's damn near impossible. Yeah, it <laughs> it is... It is strange to follow. And, and the introduction of the characters. There's the main ones, and then there's a bunch of aliases and other characters that are only there for a few moments. Mm -hmm. uh, played by that one guy that just, I think he killed it. Uh, Alan Arkin is fantastic. Let's, let's go over our main characters here really quickly. We have our protagonist, Susie Hendricks, uh, played by Audrey Hepburn, who doesn't show up until, like, after the first act or two of the movie, then our, as you called them in our notes, the Three Stooges, we have Rote, Mr. Rote Sr., and Mr. Rote Jr., all played by Alan Arkin. Klaus is going to call him Glasses, apparently. So we had Richard Crenna as Ma Mike Talman, Jack Weston as Carlino, and Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. as Sam Hendricks, uh, Audrey Hepburn's husband, and finally Julie Harrod as Gloria, the little girl who is helping Susie through her newly found blindness. And I'm sure Klaus wants to talk about Samantha Jones all day. <laughs> wow, I've never Googled something faster. <laughs> She's in the, like, the opening shot, and I was like, I don't remember her. Audrey Hepburn looking like this, but I'm certainly not going to complain. <laughs> I was just trying to see if I knew her from anything else, because she does look somewhat familiar, but I don't recognize any of these titles. The problem is her name also comes up with a Sex in the City character. Ooh. And so, I don't know, uh, it's very confusing. Yeah, is that the... Which character from Sex and the City is that? Is that the blonde one? I think her I think her name is Samantha Jones. I don't know much more beyond that. Oh, well. Yeah, I never really watched Sex and the City. I'm not a big fan of the main actress in that, whose name I can't remember right now. Horse face lady. Oh, whoa. 
Shots fired. Come on, that's a South Park joke from like the early nineties. <laughs> but what if what if she listens? She could be a fan. Uh oh no. I lost one of my ten listeners. <laughs> you can't prove she's not a fan. <laughs> I can't prove she's not. Well, actually I probably could because I have listening statistics. And two whole states have listened to our podcast so far, and I doubt she lives in Georgia or Ohio. So, <laughs> <laughs> shout out, shout out to my Columbus, Ohio fan. What up? That's just for you. Reach out to me so I can call you by your name, and you'll feel even more special. Um. Anyway, so yeah, we've got our cast of characters. Sam Hendricks, the husband, he's gonna be in there for like five minutes and then gone. And he is very late 60s mansplaining things to Susie because she blind and she woman. So she dumb, I guess. He did, man, especially at the end of the movie, man, he did some stuff throughout it. And especially at the end where I'm just like, come on, man. <laughs> come on. Well, and can, can she get a break? <laughs> Susie has this great line. Icebox needs defrosting, darling. Only my way this time. It's more practical. Use plenty of boiling water. What if I burn both my hands off your way? Don't. The uncontained's in the emergency drawer. If the weather's okay, try walking over to the studio and back. No cheating. Do I have to be the world's champion blind lady? Yes. Then I will be. I'll be whatever you want me to be. Oh. <laughs> like, and I can, I can kind of feel it. Like, I can kind of be like, all right, you know, you won't. Someone, you know, you can, people wouldn't have independence. She's going to blind school to figure all that out. But like at the end of the movie, it's like, dude, you know, she got broken into, like there's criminals and heroin afoot. And like, there was a fire. <laughs> She's been assaulted, nearly She's been assaulted, nearly sexually assaulted. <laughs> yeah. Just go ahead and cut this and put this in. And he's like, oh no, you will walk to me and then <laughs> I will hug you and comfort you. But not until then. Oh like, God. What? Yeah. That guy has some issues and possibly it's just the 1960s of it all, but we'll, we'll discuss that <laughs> later. So, so the opening kind of section is like you said there's the heroin it's put in the doll doll has to ends up in the innocent's hands which is the photographer he brings it home puts it somewhere um and forgets about it presumably glasses wants it back so these the two stooges i suppose go into this home of the blind ladies to try and I don't know what they're doing. And then Glasses comes in. Okay, and... so, well, you're doing a what? great job so far. So, Lisa, played by Samantha Jones, is supposed to carry the doll into the U.S. via plane. But when she gets to JFK in New York, she sees a guy who clearly is not friendly. So she just walks up to a random person and is like, Hey, I need to get rid of this doll or my niece or whoever will be really jealous. Hold on to it for me or something stupid like that. Uh, which we're not told for like another 40 minutes into the film. But she knows she's about to be taken hostage by one of the other criminal guys. So she gets rid of it. Then Alan Arkin or wrote, he is tasked with finding the doll and getting it back. He tracks it down to this house, invites the other two guys, which is Mike Talman and Carlino, and basically implicates them in a murder just to get them to work with him. <laughs> yeah, it's and I actually like that scene a lot because he comes in, he sits in one chair, and there's a moment when he's like, oh yeah, I'll pay you, and he puts the money on the top of his hand, and, like, and you're like, what the hell is he doing this for? And then it, he kind of reveals like, 
oh, I haven't touched anything besides this, this, and this, and I've just wiped it off, you know, and you guys have been rooting around this house for how long? How many days would it take you to clean all those finger trips? Yeah, like, he, the dumb thing to me is he's, like, sitting there smoking a cigarette, and then he pulls out, like, a baby food jar or some shit and, like, puts the cigarette in there and closes it up and everything. It's like... Yeah, but people are still going to smell cigarette smoke in their fucking house, you dumbass. <laughs> like, yeah. But when Carlino and Talman get there, they're just like walking around, picking shit up, touching everything. Fucking Carlino goes to the refrigerator and gets out a bunch of shit, starts making a sandwich and eating it. It's just like, make yourself at home, dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so he, he gives them the deal... And they're basically kind of forced into working with him, supposedly, because they were foolish. I think at this point, <laughs> there's a moment that I that I love where uh, Glasses has a key that he doesn't want to give up. And then Tallman and Carlino, like, take improv- improvised weapons, like the stand <laughs> to a camera. And then Tallman gets, like, a camera on the the string and starts swinging around like a flail (laughs) it's like this is wild but like it would hurt if he hit you but (laughs) to get him to kind of back down and sit down yeah those improvised weapons are something pretty amazing (laughs) fucking carlino's like gonna stab him with the fucking camera tripod (laughs) what are you doing dude it was just so unexpected because it was a semi-serious scene and out of nowhere camera flail (laughs) And I love Alan Arkin's character wrote, like, his accent, the way he talks and everything is just so, like, old-school movie gangster, and I love it. Once upon a time, there was a fairy princess named Lisa, and uh, she had two very good friends who shall remain nameless. Now, these three were fond of performing little dramas for select audiences. Their most memorable performances were that of Outraged Husband and Detective breaking in upon Guilty Wife in the arms of her lover, or vice versa. The detective, it's worth mentioning, was particularly convincing in his performance. But then he had had the benefit of previous on-the-job training. Oh, man. You're a charmer. Thank you. It just reminds you of, like, all those, like, 20 and 30s noir detective stuff where everybody's talking in lingo and has a weird northeastern accent no matter where they're from or where they are yeah he in my opinion he stole the show the multitude of characters he played even if they were very brief this bad guy was such a like bad guy but he was interesting even i don't know just the way he looked the way he talked his actions i i liked it a lot so There's a great quote from him. This is technically the last movie Hepburn does before she retires. And she only took the role so that she could like play against type and show everyone that she wasn't just there to do comedies and romantic comedies and musicals. So she was like, I wanted to be in a horror movie and just play something else that people thought I couldn't do. She ends up getting fucking nominated for an Oscar because of course she does. She's fucking awesome. And then Alan Arkin is taking questions and he didn't get nominated for shit which is crazy because everyone loved him in this movie somebody asked him like are are you miffed that you know you didn't get nominated he just says you don't get an oscar for being mean to audrey hepburn <laughs> which is yeah, fair enough perfect yeah. response yeah <laughs> you, you you don't get to be mean to hollywood royalty on screen and then get an award mm-hmm. for it <laughs> 
But yeah, so this first uh, section is basically setting up that this doll is somewhere in this house, presumably maybe in the safe. Why not just try to open the safe? Is get on the ride. Don't don't get off it quite yet. It's somewhere in here, and because you're implicated in a murder, you're going to help me get rid of that body of the hottie that's hanging in the closet, and then you're going to con your way into finding out where the doll is or the key to the safe or whatever, and I'll pay you for it. I love how Rote walks in and, like, immediately just has a carpet over his shoulder and throws it over the banister on the little staircase, and... After this whole conversation, when the other two guys finally figure out there's a body in the closet, it's kind of like, why did you think he was just fucking carrying a carpet around? What? <laughs> Who do you know that is just carrying a carpet around that isn't just about to move a body? Seriously. Yeah, it's. I love it too because they could have. They could not have used a carpet in the home because they were about to try to con their way through it and a missing carpet would throw it off. And I just like that they showed that part because unless you're paying attention, you might not notice or you might be like, what the heck is that for? Because <laughs> at that point, you don't know there's a body. Mm -hmm. oh, I love it. So they get to work, they get rid of the body and they come up with this whole plan that they're basically going to con their way in with this convoluted plan to try to ingratiate themselves into Audrey Hepburn because they believe she knows where the doll is. Right. And, you know, we're kind of led into meeting our main character, finally. <laughs> it's taken all this time just to get to our lead actress. We're finally introduced to Susie and her husband, the husband's a photographer, he's always busy, and blah blah blah. Uh, she has been blind for about a year. He saved her. She was in a really bad car crash that ended up blinding her. He saved her from the car crash. They got married shortly after. And that's about all you need to know about him. He's very demanding. Like, he clearly believes in her. And believes that, you know, blindness shouldn't set her back at all. Which is good and great, but at the same time, it's just like, help your wife out a little bit, dude. Yeah, he just, like, not cut any her slack at all. <laughs> like, at one point, she knocks something over and she's like, Come in. You can find it by yourself. If you couldn't, I'd tell you. Jesus Christ, dude, save the woman... 30 seconds or 60 seconds or whatever just give her a hint or or at least you know treat her like you would if she wasn't like that you know yeah because you would if she was not blind you would help her pick the things up probably <laughs> instead he's like you're doing it all yourself <laughs> by the way there's three knives down there enjoy uh so we do have the one domino setup that we have to mention which is the uh we got to defrost the freezer that's the setup i guess you have to do it the right way too yeah if you if you do it the wrong way then you're not doing it my way so it's wrong <laughs> i don't know it's i i just feel like this entire movie didn't need setup for those kinds of things because we're in the exact same ha uh small house or apartment the entire movie like we mm -hmm. see the objects that are in there I don't think you have to talk about defrosting the refrigerator for me to know that's a giant fucking refrigerator in the corner. Yeah, yeah. Or, or you know, one conversation shifted to be at night to where you can see the light of the refrigerator when it's open, you know, would have sufficed yeah. <laughs> just as much as talking about it for 30 minutes. Because I was actually kind of surprised later in the movie when it had a light that came on when you opened it. Like, because, I mean... 
I'm from, I was born in the fucking 90s. I don't, you know, I don't know shit about 1950s, 1960s refrigerators. Like, <laughs> as far as I know, you still needed a goddamn oil lamp to look in the refrigerator at night. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but I, I was a little shocked when they opened up the refrigerator and there was a bright fucking light coming out of it. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a weird domino placement, for <laughs> sure. But, uh, you know, we're introduced to Hepburn. Uh, there's a moment that's pretty cool. Where she opens up the closet, and hanging in the closet is Hottie. Then she closes the door, doesn't realize it's there. Later, the stooges come in, get the body, and, well, and dispose of it. When she first gets home, they're all still there. They're just, like, silently pressing themselves up against walls and behind doors and stuff and the whole time she's she can sense someone is there like she even stops and goes gloria i know you're there nobody answers so she just kind of like feels a little stupid for talking to herself and walks out and yeah yeah and that kind of that's a good point to bring up because it, it demonstrates her her kind of a, abilities or senses are, are pretty grounded. They're not supernatural. She can, she, I think she smells the cigarette smoke mm-hmm. and realizes something's up, but yeah, she mentions to her husband afterwards, like Gloria has been sneaking cigarettes because I smelled smoke earlier. Yeah. And yeah. Like, and, and we all have had that feeling of someone's watching me, but you don't know where. And then you turn around and realize somebody has walked into your room or something and hasn't said anything. Like we've all had that happen. So, yeah, very grounded, very realistic, and I appreciate it. Yeah, and, and she seems like she's kind of learning, at, you know, every day she's she's getting more adapted to her situation. But she doesn't have sonar or anything like that. So, uh, one of the interesting points of this is that Audrey Hepburn and the director both went to a school for the blind before production. Spent time there kind of learning, you know, what it was like to be newly blind and how to handle stuff like that and Audrey Hepburn actually took the time to learn how to walk with a stick how to read braille like she really took the time to get into the head of this character that's really cool I didn't know that there um <laughs> so like you said we're introduced to the husband he's kind of a dick busy photographer guy there's like I wrote this I wrote hashtag I'm 14 and this is deep because you have someone with a lack of sight married to a husband who's, who's like products and line of work is making things that you look at. <laughs> and not only that, but he has like pictures that he clearly took of her as she's like, you know, out at the park in New York or whatever. <laughs> it's just like her around Central Park and these wonderfully taken photos of the beautiful Audrey Hepburn, but she's blind and can never enjoy them. <laughs> Yeah, it's and it's a funny little little detail. We get a little bit of setup because he has somewhere in the apartment a dark photography room with the lights, the red lights and the chemicals. And there's a little bit of a domino set up there where there's a flammable, um, I forget what it's called, you know, it, chemical basically. It's some kind of, yeah, it, I can't remember what it is exactly. Um, I had to look it up because... I, once again, we're from the 90s. Most of what we deal with was, you know, those shitty one-use cameras that you drop off at the store and they develop them for you. And then everything went digital right after that. So I know nothing about developing film. I looked it up and it's ammonium theosulfate, I believe, which is flammable. The The thing on the bottle says it's like hydroxy or I don't know, something. Yeah, I thought it was um, an acid from the name that was on it, but... I could just be not remembering. It could be an acid too. <laughs> I don't know, but it's 
It's set up that it's a flammable substance, chemical of some sort. Okay. Uh, but yeah, that's just a domino for Act 3. So, Or final act, I guess I should say. And so uh, Discount Robert Redford, her husband, gets a phone call and says, Hey, you got a gig you know, in Central Park or somewhere, I don't know, uh, you know, get down to here ASAP, there's Spider-Man, and I need photographs immediately. <laughs> so husband's like, oh, I don't want to go, but I definitely am, uh, and leaves, which puts Hepburn alone, and the Three Stooges are staking out outside in a van by a phone booth. Yeah, and we'll, we'll find out way later that they're the ones who actually set up the quote-unquote job for the husband just so he would be out of the house. I guess they just somehow knew that Audrey Hepburn would stay behind. Like, I don't know. Uh, so many holes. Anyway, we somewhere around in here we also get introduced to Gloria, which is the little girl neighbor who is supposed to be helping Audrey Hepburn around the house, but instead is a fucking nightmare and just starts throwing shit all over the house. And they have this touching little moment, quote unquote, where after she ruins the fucking house and watches blind Susie trying to clean it up by herself, Gloria finally breaks down and starts helping her clean it up. And we get this wonderful line. Did we break anything? Oh no, I only threw unbreakables. <laughs> That was crafty of you. I learned it from Daddy. <laughs> great, great parenting. <laughs> great parenting of the year. Oh my God. Oh, I, that seems funny because she, yeah, she throws unbreakable stuff. They have that heart to heart that kind of bridges the gap. And at some point, Hepburn is like, I do wish I could do things, you know, important things like cook a souffle or pick a necktie or choose the wallpaper for the bedroom, you know. I know. I want to be gorgeous. Guess you can't have everything, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <So damn. laughs> yeah, it's really, oh, it's really heartbreaking. <laughs> it's like, uh, you can't compare yourself to Hepburn. Like, that's not a fair comparison. Yeah. <laughs> for most people. And I have to say, I generally hate child actors. Like, in recent years, child actors have gotten much better, I think much more professional but especially back in the 60s most child actors were just awful it's good then that they got this actress uh who plays gloria she actually starred in the play version of this story and so she had a lot of experience playing this character already and so they just took her off the stage put her on film and it worked really well she did a really good job I, that's i did not know that that is awesome <laughs> and she did do a good job she did a good job so yeah we got we got them to together every everybody's all made up hooray i did want to mention i did want to mention this right before the gloria throw stuff scene the soft shoe starts which is a term they use in the movie i had to look it up it's like a form of tap dance um so i guess it's like the game is afoot and i thought it was a cool terminology to use mm -hmm. so tallman goes in and starts kind of like pretending he's part of the army the army company or battalion that her husband was in and uh, there was this one moment like attention to detail that I loved when Gloria came in the room and Tallman immediately like turned around so that she, she didn't see his face. Well, and it's hilarious that Tallman and Carlino, neither of them even think about the fact that other people might be around that can see their faces. Like, right. wrote clearly thought of that as we'll find out in just a minute but these two are just fucking clueless like walk into a house you don't know and touch everything and grab food out the fridge and then you know walk around with your 
fucking con man notes on a small little notepad, not even realize, oh yeah, other people in the world exist? Like... <laughs> the notepad that says crimes yeah. and how to make them. <laughs> Step one, lie to blind lady. Step two, find doll. Step three, question mark, question mark, question mark. Step four, profit. So... <laughs> Uh, That's actually a great summation of their con plan, actually. Mm. <laughs> and we're about to enter the question mark, question mark, question mark period. <laughs> when Gloria leaves at some point and Tallman is still like shooting the shit with British Lady, there's a weird thing where like the ashtray is on fire. Did he start it or is that just happenstance? Fuck, I can't remember how it starts. I don't re- I don't remember him starting it. I thought it just no, happened. The husband put it out or something. Yeah, because I think she was in the room by herself, Audrey Hepburn. I think it was her alone. Yeah, she was alone. She smells smoke. She freaks the fuck out, calls the police, and then Tallman shows up. And he, like, saves her by putting out the fire. And the whole time, the phone is off the hook with the operator on the line and while they're talking for, like... I don't know, like a six or seven minute scene, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And and so he I guess kinda ingratiates herself by happenstance by helping put out the ashtray and he mentions a couple things about the army and like, oh, he points at a random picture that she can't see, obviously, and says, Oh, there I am. I sure was young back then. <laughs> you know, just bullshitting her and he does a good job. Basically setting up what is to come the like rotating the rotating door of characters that just like come in in and out very quickly and back to back. So for the con, we have Talman playing uh, the fake friend of the husband, and mm-hmm. he's using that as an excuse to be in contact and that he wanted to see the husband Oh, he's out. Well, I'll give you the phone number to where I'm staying, gives her the phone number to the phone booth across the street. And then we have Carlino, who we found out was an ex-detective, so he's playing a fake detective now and is trying to use that to pressure Audrey Hepburn into giving up the doll uh, later on by saying that, you know, she's involved in this murder case and all this other bullshit. And then you have Rote, who is playing himself, a fake old Mr. Rote Sr., and then a fake Mr. Rote Jr. that will all come into play to give this convoluted story a bunch of just bullshit steps that i guess we have to go through to try and get this doll back yeah and and it's it's kind of confusing but i think their their plan with with those characters is to set up that there was a crime and this the murdered woman had a doll and the murdered woman knew your husband and he has the doll thus implicating him in the murder whether he did it or not and they're using that pressure for the police the fake detective to come in and say, I'm investigating and apply pressure. And then for Tallman to say like, Hey, I can help you out of that by I'll take the doll and I'll get rid of it for Mm -hmm. you is basically their plan. Expecting she's going to know where the doll is, give it up and then go about their business. So the murdered woman, her last name was supposedly wrote. And that's why Rote's character is coming in over and over again to be like, your husband was sweep sleeping with my son's wife. And I now have the proof as he just steals a random picture out of the bedroom and runs out, comes in later in the wrote junior disguise and is like, 
well, me and my wife were having some problems and blah, 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 but now she's been missing and later find out she's found dead and I blame your husband because I, they were sleeping together and blah, like, oh God, it's so convoluted. <laughs> yeah, and I especially feel like even if you're by the cons standard, you could still take those rote characters out of it, and I feel like the pressure of the police alone and then Talman being there to relieve it would have been enough to be a con plan. Like, the rote characters bringing in did not need to happen, but it's a wild ride. But you do have, like, the little things that Susie notices that keeps her on edge from fully believing the story like she's she's pretty naive for the most part throughout this movie but at the same time she's noticing little odd things like uh after carlino comes in the first time and leaves she's like is this room dirty no why so i didn't get dusting things did he yes over by the refrigerator and banisters everything he could remember that he touched and uh and also i think she noticed that roach senior and junior were like wearing the same shoes i think was another thing she noticed that, yeah that's how she eventually catches on to Rote is that one of his shoes squeak which is why you never wear new shoes on a con job gentlemen and then another one i remember is she uh she later realized or remembered like why was everyone going over and like opening and closing the blinds mm -hmm. they were doing it to signal to the people out in the van to make a phone call or something but she was like that was one thing that added up in the evidence of like something else is going on yeah uh, it's little touches like that, and honestly, I can't even remember in the sound design, like, how many of those things had blatant sound to them, because, like, the blinds made a little bit of noise, but I thought they were pretty quiet and barely even noticed them making noise, but, you know, the fact that your blind character who knows the house really well recognizes the noise, that makes a lot of sense. And then the, sure. the squeaky shoe thing was very highlighted, like they did a zoom in on his fucking foot as it was making a squeaking noise, which, you know, other than that, you might not have known what was making the squeaky noise. So I'll excuse the blatant zoom to show you what yeah. it was. The other thing, too, about like the blinds is I don't. Did they? I feel like we didn't know what that was. Did I just miss something? Like I saw them doing it, and I myself asked the question: "Was like, why are they doing this?" And I later found out: Did they set that up prior, or is that just something the viewer figured out? Um, I can't remember if they mentioned it before Talman went into the house or not, because there is a little scene where they're in the VW bus across the road, right beside the phone booth. And they're about to start their plan after the husband leaves. But I can't remember if they mentioned like, hey, flip the blinds when X happens or whatever. Yeah. I, but you figure it out pretty Yeah, pretty I, I don't remember having any problem with it or being confused about it or anything. I don't. I just don't remember the exact circumstance. There was one note I wanted to put because they are using the blinds to make a phone call. At some point, um, Hepburn wants Tallman to call the police for some reason. And she's like, do you know the number to the police? Because I guess this was before it was converted to 911. I, I think she just didn't want to call the uh, emergency number. The emergency line? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, she, I just, she's a good citizen. She's not trying to back up the 911 yeah. call center with bullshit. But yeah. <laughs> See, I just got a recall to the IT crowd. <laughs> Today, dialing 999 won't get you the emergency services. So, remember the new number. Oh, 
god, yeah, that shit is perfect. <laughs> uh, so I guess what happens, there's a lot of rotating cast of all these characters coming in and basically applying pressure that there's an investigation going on, and while Talman is trying to ingratiate himself with her and get her to trust him enough to get the doll, of course she has no idea where it is, she agrees to search for it, they search for a while and do not find it, and then out of nowhere, um, I guess neighbor Gloria is hearing this from upstairs or something, and goes and hides the doll very poorly underneath the sofa, yeah. sort of. She, Next to the sofa, really. So she took the doll, obviously, because she just wanted a doll. She's a little kid, whatever. And then she's like, oh, shit, I guess they're looking for it. So I'll have to go stick it somewhere where they'll find it, but think they just overlooked it. <laughs> so she just, like, sticks it halfway under the couch with half of it sticking out. Oh, God, it's really, really sad. <laughs> but then once, once Susie is kind of called on to the game and is not trusting anyone at this point she finally gets the doll and just like shoves it into the washing machine <laughs> it's like yeah we'll just hide it there hopefully nobody will look yeah and and it's really the that she called on kind of makes their con work against what they want mm -hmm. and and she does need outside help though she recruits gloria uh, finally and mm -hmm. is like watch the phone booth across the road if you see somebody using it knock on the pipes and so she she receives a call from carlino saying that he's got more evidence or whatever and she hears the knocks on the pipes and then she calls uh what is supposed to be the number to get in touch with talman at his hotel or whatever and after she gets off the phone she hears the knocks again and that's when she's like fuck yeah. they're all in on it yeah and i think gloria like the other signal too is like gloria calls and lets it ring twice and then hangs up or something but yeah gloria basically signals or confirms to hepburn that they're all in on it they're all using just the thing outside and now she doesn't trust anybody right I'm trying to remember what all happens. I know at some point she recruits Gloria to like take, put something in her bag and take it down the road or something. Like there's there's a whole lot of steps that I don't fully remember why the fuck they were done. Yeah, I think she she Gloria cons a sergeant to go find the husband. She's like on her way to find right, the husband, right. so she pretends she's selling Girl Scout cookies or whatever, and that gets her by. You know, and she drags her stick or something along all the mm -hmm. the metal things to let. Hepburn here that she's gotten past him and is on her way to get help essentially. Right. Right, right, right. And I think at this point it's kind of like the that moves us into the one of the last sections of the movie is like the jig is up. She now knows like they're involved and they're she may not know the the length or of what they're trying to do or why, but she knows that they're all working together and it's probably not a real police officer and Tallman's not really her husband's friend and all of that. So Tallman goes in and he like looks at her and like immediately knows it's over. I will say during all of this, like right before she really stitches it all together, Rote comes in and he's doing some stuff in the background while talking to Susie. And you're kind of like, wait, what is he doing? What, what's going on here? And you figure out later he was cutting the phone line finally to like cut her off from actually being able to call the cops and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, which is done better than most normal movies today where they have to get rid of cell phones. <laughs> like he's just quietly yeah. taking it and cutting the cord and comes up with a way to like tie the door, front door closed so it can't open. Like get, when he's getting ready for this final showdown, it's a great little touch 
Yeah, I, I agree. And yeah, so, so Tallman comes in, he knows it's up. Um, glasses is like, yeah, I'll meet you in the parking lot, Sergeant, which I guess is code for I'm going to run you over with my car. <laughs> number of times yeah so you have all the con men turning on each other the carlino yeah. and tallman have figured out that Rote is a really bad guy that they don't want to be involved with and he's going to be taking this mm-hmm. too far soon so they try to lure him into a parking lot to run him over and we get a really fun scene of them just driving over a dummy and backing over it driving over it like six seven times i fucking love it <laughs> <laughs> we will find out that it was actually uh, Rote in the car running over Carlino and not the other way around. And Rote shows up, takes out Tallman, and yeah, everything's kind of yeah. going to hell. Because at, at that point, Tallman is just kind of like, he realizes the jig's it up, jig is up. He's basically like, yeah, I'm just trying to get the doll. And he's at that point just like, I'm going to cut my losses. I'm just going to get out of here. Glasses shows up, kills him with his like weird but really cool like Shiva knife or I don't know what it is but it's it, re- it's it reminds cool. me of that dagger from Game of Thrones that uh shit what's his name that one guy had that was obsessed with Khaleesi like he had that dagger with the naked woman on the handle oh her assassin lover uh-huh. I can't remember his name I don't remember his name but yeah <laughs> it just remember reminded me of that <laughs> just a switchblade coming out of a naked woman hilt <laughs> yeah so he he kills uh talman um and is basically at this point like you know all right con didn't work now we're just gonna use violence i guess i have a knife you tell me where the doll is so before we get into too much of the finishing stuff just wanted to get through some of my behind the scenes stuff one of the things that made this uh performance by audrey so great she she's always been famous for her bright eyes in film and everything and the director was even like your eyes are too sparkly to be a blind woman like we're going to have to do something about that so they fit her with these contacts to dull the sparkle in her eye because that's just how attractive and charismatic she is but these contacts actually blurred her vision and made her partially blind so that's one of the reasons she's so good at it is she is partially blind throughout the movie there was some moment at some point i think it was when when the con started really going and that revolving door of character where it really felt like a play most of the camera angles were like from one side one wall of the house which you could easily feel was probably the the crowd in in the playhouse when it was a play how the characters came in and out the costumes the plot itself it was kind of like suspend your disbelief it felt like a play it was really interesting yeah uh everything was just like a little heightened and a little more theatrical than movies generally feel um even even for the late 60s and everything and i i definitely got that same like was this a play feel and i was uh, Kind of surprised when I looked it up and found out it was a stage play for several years leading up to the movie being made. And it's actually still being put on in places all over the U.S. today. So still holds up. I'm, I would kind of like to see a more modern retelling of the story to see how it changes. But yeah, I, I thought that was fun. So the jig is up. Tallman is dead. Glasses is now like, give me the doll or else. She gives up the doll. And at this point, 
the movie could be over. But instead, Glasses decides to get real creepy with some lace <laughs> and decides the the doll itself alone isn't enough. And we get that fun scene of him actually cutting open the doll and getting the drugs out. And the whole time, I love Audrey Hepburn's reactions because she hears him cut open the doll and then she hears the plastic packages on the table and she's just like what the fuck is happening like i thought this was just all about a doll with a music box in it i don't know what's going on and it definitely i think the one of the moments this kind of turned from wacky con play into like this is more of a horror is when she follows the line of the foam to the end and finds out it's been cut and it all kind of clicks that like you know, they're going to get what they want, and if that means killing, they're going to do it. And she has that Hepburn, like, scream, and then it's like, oh, now this is a horror. Dude, Audrey Hepburn has just some of the best on-screen freakouts ever. Like, it's overly dramatic, and, you know, you can say she's overacting if you want, but at the same time, it plays so well on screen that you just have to love it. <laughs> amazing so yeah glasses tears open the doll gets all the the drugs and at this point he could just walk out he has what he wants she doesn't know what he looks like you know he's wearing gloves no fingerprints mm -hmm. um, and he's basically we could get scot-free but he t decides to take more than that and gets a bit creepy with some lace dragging over her decides he wants more before he leaves but this is when she finally decides to use her disability to her advantage. She starts just, she knocks him to the ground or something really quick, and then just starts running around the house. Or, uh, no, before he even gets in there, actually. I forgot about this. She went around the house and knocked out all the light bulbs, like just breaking all the lights in the hallway, all the ones in the house. And the only one she doesn't break is like one of the lights that her husband uses for his darkroom area. Because it's got a big housing around it, so she can't just break the bulb. And she mm -hmm. thinks she turns it off, but she accidentally turns it on. <laughs> <laughs> and that, which is really good for a movie because we still need to see what's going on. And so her mm -hmm. accidentally turning one on is a nice little touch, I thought. And I think she also pours some of the ammonium sulfate or the, the photography chemical, flammable chemical, into a plant or something in a bowl. Yeah, I think she puts it into a flower pot. Like, she's, she's prepping this. She's getting yeah. ready for it. So she preps all this stuff, glasses comes in, gets the doll, tears it open, and decides he wants more than that. And now we're kind of in the final showdown. Alan Arkin is really menacing throughout all of this, but when he's doing the lace on her face and she's just freaking out not knowing what the fuck he's doing, like that's when it starts to get a little darker and a little darker. And then finally he's like grabbing her by the arm and walking her back to the bedroom with a knife pointed at her, you know? That's when it's clearly like, this guy is just an evil fuck. Right. Like, we, we gotta get past this and past it soon <laughs> you know yeah and so he's walking her back into the bedroom and i think i can't remember how she gets the knife if she either pulls it out a tall man or like throws a chair at him or something but she gets the knife at some point yeah she takes it into her own hands and beats him up a little bit uh turns out the last light so that they're in complete darkness and you can kind of hear some stuff and just when he gets a little bit of light on the situation she fucking stabs him yeah <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, oh, shit, yes, 
Um, he goes down. I'm trying to remember exactly how it happens. She like starts to walk away. Yeah, she starts to walk away, and you kind of think it's over. And then out of nowhere, there's this like piano, like discordant, loud, jarring as he like leaps out of the ground and like tries to tackle her. And that's like I don't know if it was a, you call it a jump scare or not, but like I certainly jumped <laughs> when that <laughs> happened out of nowhere. Um, as he's like trying to knife drag his way to Hepburn who's like backing up into the corner um, because the fridge is open and the light's out yeah. or the light is open and he can see hold on let's let's try and do this and backtrack whole, a little bit yeah let's try and do this whole scene in, in order with everything after he gets the drugs out of the doll and everything that's when she throws the chemical in his eyes cuts the one remaining light off she splashes gas everywhere and she has a box of matches and she's just lighting the match one at a time and letting it burn down and threatening to throw it on the ground if he comes any closer. She also, I think, during that is like making him use a cane or something he has to like tap where he is. And she's using that to like hear where he is as she's trying to, in between matches, like move towards the door and try to get escape. Yeah, and he slowly makes his way over to the refrigerator and opens it up. And that's where we get the fridge light. So he can see my, my only note here was fridge light unfair. <laughs> Cause she, she doesn't realize that the lights on and he even takes like a wash rag and puts it into the crease of the refrigerator door to keep it open. If she tries to close it, which was a good touch. And the whole time she's like, please may I give you the doll? Like just fucking take the doll and get the fuck right. out of here. And at any point, it should be noted, like, just to demonstrate that this guy is evil. At any point, like, she still hasn't seen his face. He could still get away. Now, I guess once he's stabbed, there's blood. But this is maybe before DNA evidence? <laughs> maybe in the 60s? Yeah. Question? <laughs> Question mark? DNA stuff didn't come around till the 90s, bro. It was still really sketch in the 90s, so... <laughs> thought it came in like the 80s or something but regardless yeah it's definitely before that but still but but wait but he was so concerned about the freaking cigarette bud maybe it was just finger fingerprints yeah it was all it was all fingerprints i mean fingerprints had been used for a long long time even like i, I want to say they were first theorized to be useful in the late 1800s or right at the turn of the century and then around the time of the 40s and 50s, they started getting more and more use as a crime-solving thing, as they were proven to be almost exclusive to one person each. Mm -hmm. So he opens the fridge, and at that point, he like runs and grabs her and keeps her from escaping? Um, well, in this time, she's had she's been pleading with him, and she's finally kind of seeing the real side of Rote and... At this point, she's had a chance to, like, get a kitchen knife and hide it away on her so he doesn't notice. And that's, after the kitchen light and everything, that's when Rote kind of makes his move and starts to get all rapey talking. Okay. And then that's when she stabs him, tries to run and unplug the refrigerator as he's, like, knife dragging his way towards her. Yeah, once again, just keep stabbing. I mentioned this in Hush. If you're going to stab him once, just hold on to the knife and keep fucking stabbing. <laughs> don't, don't just stab once and run away. Come on, people. But yeah, she's she stabs him in the gut or whatever, and he's down, and she thinks she's finally got a way out, and he just lunges out of the darkness at the end of the room and grabs her. Like, that shit legit made me jump. Yeah. 
finally, after he jumps on her, she like finally kicks him off, gets away. And she runs over to the refrigerator, realizing that it's open, and she's spending all this time trying to close it. Can't find the rag that's holding it open, and he's just slowly bleeding on the floor, crawling mm-hmm. across the floor, trying to get to her. And when he finally gets close, she like tucks into the corner. She's in the corner she? trying to find where the power cord is to the right. refrigerator because she can't get it closed and she's like oh fuck i gotta just turn it off just get the power off of it and just as he's getting over there she finally gets it and so we're in complete darkness and just hear some noises and the next scene is like the cop showing up basically yeah the cops bust down the door the husband finally went and got him i guess gloria found him and they went and got the cops together and showed back up. Husband is very much like does not seem concerned. <laughs> yeah. We we like it takes forever. The suspense was kind of killing me with Hepburn just hiding in the corner and the whole house is fucking torn apart. There's a body on the floor, you know, and the whole time you're just like, shit, did he actually get Hepburn? Like <laughs> yeah. what's gonna happen? And finally she comes out of that corner behind the refrigerator. And I, I know you loved this line from the husband. Yeah, and Dickbag husband, this whole time as we're waiting for Hepburn to either be dead or reveal herself, you know, he's has this like unconcerned attitude. He's you can tell he's just like, Look at this mess. I can't believe she hasn't cleaned <laughs> this up yet and have my dinner prepared. And at some point she she like moves the refrigerator door she's there she's alive um and she kind of starts to get up and and she's like oh it's good to see you or something and he's like oh yes i will give you a hug but only if you walk to me because <laughs> you have to be world champion blind lady god damn it even after you're attacked by three men and almost got raped had to kill a guy <laughs> yeah like probably bleeding like yeah <laughs> and not only that like there's shit all over the floor she almost busts her ass trying to get over to him and he doesn't even like mention watch out or help her in any way just forces her to walk all the way across the room like jesus christ dude just take a little bit of pity <laughs> one time yeah there's like a difference between like wanting her to be independent and like being a dick bag <laughs> Uh huh. <laughs> My good God. But like we mentioned, this movie is just a suspense crime thriller movie up until mm-hmm. Alan Arkin's character starts getting all creepy and crazy. Yeah. Uh, but that last bit of horror, oh, it's so creepy and it works so well. I I put my horror stamp on this all day, every day. Also, the end credit song is a bop. Great song. <laughs> I ended up having to look up this song. It's pretty damn good. I I miss the days when, like, every movie had its own personally made theme song. (laughs) Yeah. I miss those days. Jingo! Jingo! I like, too, at the credits, they're they're showing the actors, and they say the character they played, and, like, show a short clip of that character. And Alan Arkin gets three in a row. (laughs) Like, Alan Arkin as this character. Alan Arkin as this character. (laughs) Not on the same panel. Like, it switches, and Uh then it's him again. (laughs) And it's him in the different costumes he wore. (laughs) It's like, like Alan Arkin wrote Mr. Rote Sr., Mr. Rote Jr. (laughs) It was fucking great. (laughs) Oh, it's so good. And I didn't mention it earlier, but the intro credits for this movie are fucking great because they do the cold open of uh, the girl getting the doll with the drugs in it, and then they play the opening credits over her getting in the cab, going to the airport, getting on the plane, getting off the plane, and all of that stuff. So 
I love opening credits where we're just shown the beginning of the story with no dialogue. It's such yeah. a clean way to get us to the quote-unquote starting point of what the actual play was while still getting our intro credits in there. And I, I love that kind of stuff. I wish more movies nowadays did opening credits like this because it's become a trend now to where we don't have any opening credits until after the movie is over. And then we do the mandated quote unquote opening credits and then do the real credits immediately afterward. Like what is even the fucking point? Yeah, I, I agree. I'd love to see it more like more like this. And I, I did want to point out, too, there's some horror elements to the opening scene. Like, the first couple scenes are, like, you see red and, like, stitching being ripped open. There's, like, cotton. And it's kind of, like, implicating or implying horror elements. But it's really, they're just putting drugs in the doll. But some cool stuff. The music box inside that doll is playing a creepy fucking tune. Oh, I actually found out the way they get that creepy sound going on the composer had two pianists play the exact same tune but the pianos were tuned a half or a quarter note off from one another so <laughs> so it just gives you this creepy eerie feeling of yeah, two notes that aren't quite the same but are close yeah that's cool. I like it. It'd be cool to see this in theaters, because I know you you said they did some interesting stuff. Oh, yeah. So when this movie came out, it was even advertised as saying, like, back. so back in the day, films were, is really loose what you could do at theaters. Like, you would just show up and you wouldn't necessarily go to a movie that, you know, had a start time that you were waiting on or whatever. A lot of people would just go to the movies and sit down halfway through a movie that was going on. So this movie, they specifically said, after this point in the movie, you won't be able to enter or exit the theater. And on top of that, for the last part of the movie, we're going to dim the lights as much as law will allow us to. <laughs> that last scene where all the lights are out and everything's cut down, they really wanted the, for the last eight minutes, they wanted the audience to be sitting in complete darkness if they could. And I, I really wish they did shit like this nowadays for movies because it's, it's a little annoying when you're sitting there watching a completely dark scene or an almost completely dark scene and you've got like, you know, the little lights on the stairs going down beside you just kind of brightening the steps and everything around you. I wish they could still do stuff like this. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, being able to engage the other senses would would be. And there's some, you know, at theme parks where they'll spray water and stuff like that. But you don't even need something that gimmicky. Just light changes or sounds, mm -hmm. you know, using the surround system to your advantage, like stuff like that would be really cool. We'll we'll get that smell of vision one day. <laughs> one day. Can't wait. Um, did you hit all the background stuff you wanted, or did you want to talk about the Oscars? Like I said, somehow, amazingly, a horror movie or suspense movie got nominated for an Oscar, but of course it's a lead actress by Audrey Hepburn, so it's not that big of a surprise. I mean, it was her fifth Oscar nom. Problem was, she was up against... Faye Dunaway for Bonnie and Clyde, which was a really fun movie, even though historically inaccurate. Uh, Anne Bancroft in The Graduate, which is a fantastic fucking movie. And they all ended up losing to Catherine Hepburn in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, uh, which I still haven't seen Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and I really fucking need to. One of these days, I'm going to put together a list of, like, Oscar winners that I just need to see all of the Oscar winners. So we'll, we'll have fun looking at that eventually. But Catherine Hepburn losing to Audrey Hepburn is just sad in my opinion. They're both great actresses, but I like Audrey. Were they the Olsen twins of their day? They're not even related. <laughs> I don't know. 
Press X to doubt. Uh, there was one other thing that I read, but it was just kind of in the IMDb trivia and didn't have any sources. So don't quote me on this one, folks. But supposedly, like, I know for a fact Audrey Hepburn grew up in a small European town during World War II. And when she was a teenager, she worked as a nurse at one of these, you know, field hospitals, basically, in the town helping allied soldiers. Supposedly, the director for this movie, Terrence Young, supposedly she treated him in this field hospital during World War II and then of course later ended up starring in his movie. I don't know how true that is but it was on the IMDb trivia so take that at face value. (laughs) It sounds like a good story. (laughs) Yeah (laughs) seems legit. So what are your overall thoughts, overall rating? It's a heist con movie from the victim's POV, which I love. I totally understand the great feelings for this one from other critics and everything. So many movies now feel like they've stolen from this. There's just too many good shots and too many great atmospheric stuff going on that it'd be hard to believe a lot of people haven't stolen from it. Taking the con heist plot, turning it on its head to become a full-on horror movie was really fun because it's not like a Ocean's Eleven that just stays upbeat and fun throughout. It's taking it and turning it into something that feels more sinister, more dark. This works so well because the tone and pacing throughout most of the movie is just that. It's that upbeat heist con movie, but it's slowly develops into this more horrifying total picture where our protagonist uncovers the nefarious plot of the antagonist. Audrey Hepburn is fucking amazing as always. She carries the movie from start to finish even though she isn't in it for like the first 25 or 30 minutes. And Alan Arkin is still probably one of the best villains as far as a really grounded movie goes. As Mr. Wrote, that accent puts me in that wise guy mood. It's just something you can't get away with anymore that I really wish showed up in more stuff even in even in like a boardwalk empire on hbo you didn't get too many characters that were able to pull off that wise guy attitude even though it was set in prohibition mafia days and ah they they just pulled off something really special here it's it's grounded enough that you feel these characters exist but it's heightened enough to where it doesn't necessarily feel like real life and it's jump jump rope with that balance all day that keeps it in this wonderful limbo that just keeps you involved and keeps you wanting more all the way until uh, Alan Arkin's character is just so despicable you need him to die. Overall, I think I'm going to give this movie an 8.5 out of 10. The the convoluted plot made me feel stupid, which I don't enjoy, but at the same time it was fun. So I, I got to take off a little bit just for the naivete of our protagonist and the overly convoluted too long of a con job that ultimately falls apart and is solved by a blind woman and a prepubescent girl. So (laughs) other than that, it's still a fantastic movie and I'm sure I'll be watching this again over the next couple of years. How about you, Klaus? I like a lot what you said about um, that balance between believable, grounded characters and also this heightened, dramatic, theatrical plot and con that's not really necessary but is a fun ride you kind of let yourself go on and and i really agree with that and i feel like some of the characters were very grounded and yet i love the villain because he in my mind feels almost supernatural like not isn't quite obviously and shows no signs of it 
but has this knife that is like ceremonial and looks like something you could have found in a museum. But he has this wise guy attitude. He has these very distinct dramatic glasses, you know, his whole get up. And it feels like he's a representation of like old scratch or, or evil in some manner. Or he's a warlock or, or something. <laughs> um, so I love that. And then you just have these two goonish, the two stooges con men that are kind of think they're in a, for a simple con job and get tied up in something much more nefarious. And then you have Aubrey Hepburn, who's kind of there tying it all together, um, being that naive at some times, but also quite perceptive at other times and is able to put this stuff together, come up with a logical plan to get the neighbor's daughter to help her figure this all out. So I really enjoyed the the story and the trip from, from start to finish. I really enjoyed it. That pretty much wraps up Wait Until Dark. I don't think I can talk about this movie anymore. It's just, it's great. If you haven't seen it, please go watch it. Even even knowing what happens, I feel this movie has tons of rewatchability. Yeah, I agree. I agree for sure. All right, so so what do you think? This is kind of the the last movie of this subgenre about invading the homes of the t- disabled. What do you think about overall about this subgenre? I mean, I've said it several times throughout our series this month. I love home invasion horror and having an extra little twist of our protagonist or someone in being involved having a disability and being deprived of a sense especially is a really fun way to throw a new quirk into the subgenre. We've seen ways of it being done great. We've seen ways of it being done as poorly as possible. And honestly, I had trouble finding movies to fit in this little niche. So it's it's kind of a weird one. I kind of wish I had more movies to pull from just to give a broader sense of where these movies all fall into line. But there's just honestly not enough examples at least not that I've seen. I'd love to, if you have more out there, please send them my way. As far as our four examples, though, you can you can do it almost perfect, but if you let one thing fall apart, your entire movie starts to unravel. It's really difficult to do. I think Wait Until Dark, I think it did it best because while the entire plot revolved around her inability to see, it also had to do with how smart she is and how she can work around it and figure it out. Whereas stuff like Hush, it was done really well to a point, but then you have the whole writer brain thing, and when that is the linchpin that your entire third act is set upon, and it falls apart, it really hurts you. Mm-hmm. And then in Don't Breathe, I feel like it just wasn't utilized as much as it could have been. Yeah. You get that one great scene in the dark but other than that and mischief night once again is just a fucking dumpster fire of a movie so i don't know uh i still love home invasion horror i just think if you're going to dabble in someone and the person who's being invaded being disabled you're gonna have to really focus on that aspect and make sure that it plays right Mm -hmm. clearly that's very difficult to do and and you can see i mean you talked about they did their research with wait until dark with going to the school and kind of it, you can, you can see that pay off because they didn't really slip up as much in, in that film regarding her, her ability or her senses. Mm-hmm. And I supposedly for mischief night, that actress did her research quote unquote, but uh, it wasn't shown in the film. Mm-hmm. Not very well, at least. So it, it doesn't matter how much prep time an actor puts into their job if the director and the writers are just gonna fuck it up anyway Mm -hmm. 
Once again, filmmaking is a very large group effort. And also, you got to think, like, I I give a lot of leeway to Hush, and I'm sure some people are going to shit-talk me for even giving it a 6.5 because of the problems I had with it. But at the same time, it had one-tenth the budget of Don't Breathe. And in my opinion, even though I gave it the same score as Don't Breathe, in my opinion, it's a better movie. Agreed completely. Yeah, much better in my mind. Yeah, I I had to dock points because, once again, if you rely on one point and that one point doesn't stand up, you have to take off a bunch of points. But I'm so much more entertained by Hush than I am Don't Breathe. The technical aspects don't bother me while I'm watching it. It's only in retrospect when I'm Mm -hmm. looking at it with some distance. Yeah, and uh, I think that's, you know, with this this subgenre in general, you take kind of a, a genre of home invasion horror and then you add this extra variable of disability or different senses of some sort and it just adds that extra variable that can both change uh, the dynamics of the plot but also adds an extra something you have to work around and understand and make sure you're not slipping up around it and make sure you're consistent right it adds an extra variable you have to take into account which can benefit your movie but also can get in the way if you're not careful Mm -hmm. and and at times i felt like there's that stupid dane cook joke of him going to see one of the new superman movies and like a bullet bounces slow motion off of superman's eye and the guy beside him is just like bullshit like i I feel like i'm that guy sometimes because (laughs) like in uh don't breathe when he smells the shoes you know and i'm like bullshit (laughs) It's like, yeah, that could probably happen, but he also should have smelled the two fucking teenagers or 20-somethings that he was standing six inches away from. <laughs> yeah, and because and it, it is it is bullshit if, you know, it's not bullshit if, uh, you know, Superman's eye can deflect a bullet, but he can also fly and he's super strong. But if sometimes Superman can't detect with his x-ray vision people, but then other times he can, and then other times he can deflect bullets and the other times he can't, you know, it's that consistency that makes, can become a problem in this kind of genre. Exactly. And once again, it's all on the writers and the Mm -hmm. directors and the editors. You have to be consistent. And I feel really bad for some of these actors because they gave good performances or in some cases, great performances. And then they're just ruined by everyone else in the film, not understanding what they needed to do to get it across. So moving on from this subgenre. What are we looking forward to? I am so excited. I cannot contain myself. (laughs) So I have to give a shout out to my sister and I'm going to talk to her in just a little bit. She's supposed to be helping me with this one a little bit because I think I mentioned in an earlier episode, she's an English major. She used to teach at a university here in town as an English teacher. So this is going to be me relying on some other people's uh, expertise a little bit. But next month, we are doing 90s Shakespeare adaptations. <laughs> yes. uh. Ooh, I, yeah, my sister's going to kick my ass whenever she listens to these episodes because I don't know shit about Shakespeare, but we're going to do it anyway. <laughs> yes. And yeah, if you're listening to this and it's before the other episodes come out, Go ahead and Google 90s Shakespeare adaptations because there's a lot of them and I think you'll have fun trying to guess which ones we chose to actually cover. All right.
I guess that's it. Until next time. This has been real specific. <laughs> we did it. We did it. Woo! Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the show. I just want to remind everyone that we have a Twitter account at Real Specific, where I will post updates and any memes and things that we produce. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please reach out to us at realspecificpod at gmail.com. Or drop by our anchor.fm page to leave us a voice message that can be added directly into the show. Thanks again, and enjoy. Thank you.